I'm working on a writing book, a second one. This one's called, my working title is Make Your Memoir Suck Less. That was writer and former Chronicle columnist Adair Lara. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, we feature musicians, bartenders, journalists, writers, and other San Franciscans talking about living, working, and doing their thing here. It's a way to get to know your neighbors. Welcome to episode 34, part two. In part one, Adair talked about the Victorian home in DuBose Triangle that she's lived in since 1973. In this podcast, she shares the story of how she got started writing a column for the San Francisco Chronicle in 1989. There's even a little story about Herb Cain weaved in. Here's Adair. And that started when, I, I think it really started when I met Nini McCabe. She was Charles McCabe's daughter. Uh, and she was, lit, he had recently, I think it was recently, died and been found dead in uh, his Telegraph Hill apartment. And this is where she was living. You know, it's the kind of apartment where the landlord's weeping outside because hoping that they, somebody will eventually die. And he did, so I don't know how that worked. But in any case, uh, Nini McCabe, and we had a uh, writing club called Daughters of Irish Alcoholics. <laughs> is there a, an acronym for that? Daughters of DIA. Irish. The DIA club. And her father was the famous curmudgeon, uh, Charles McCabe. Now, what did he drink? Was it called the Green Death? It was always at this bar, I think, called the Cafe Spore. No, that didn't sound right. Hmm. People over in North Beach, or definitely in North Beach. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so we, you know, it's just a writing club where you exchange writing. But uh, at about this time, I was starting to send those pieces into the Sunday Punch, which is was the Sunday paper of the San Francisco Chronicle. Okay. Right, and they were appearing these little, you know, just sort of short humor pieces, and the features editor then was named Rosalie Wright, and I started running into her at places, events of various kinds, and she liked my writing, and that led that summer, I was working for magazines then, to her asking me to do 10 sample columns with the idea of writing writing a column for the Chronicle. This is terribly exciting to Mm -hmm. me, right, and and I, I produced 10 columns which I produced to have, I, of course, I pretended to have just whipped off, right? Like, you know, I was, wasn't busy last night. Here were three of them. But actually, you know, had been things I'd had lying around for years and were now, f- I took time off from my magazine job to work on them, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and gave them to her in, I guess, late June that year. This is 1989. Okay. And, and she turned them over to her superiors. The editor of the Chronicle then was a man named Bill German. Okay. But no, I, she never heard anything, and I never heard anything. And months went on, German was you know, visiting the Appalachians of France or something, everybody was gone. And so, you know how you do. I, I sent a letter saying that I'd had other, other offers, right? Which was completely a lie. Yeah. I'm busy. 
<laughs> well, you know, I, you know, yeah. But if they like you, they usually believe that mm-hmm. you've had other offers. And mm-hmm. I said that if by the end of the summer I hadn't heard anything, I would, I would just view this as uh, not happening, mm-hmm. right? And I swear to God, August thirty first at five p.m., <laughs> they called me into the office and hired me. Nice. And I, Bill German was then seventy two. If you've been if you'd been around San Francisco very long, you would know this this editor. And I said, what do you want me to write about? And he said, just write about your life. Which was, uh, nobody was doing that then. This was called a personal column. I'm not sure we even had that name. But there wasn't this kind of column before, not Mm -hmm, really. mm -hmm. I mean, uh, various people who had produced what are called personal columns about their lives would say that a person has six or seven of those columns in them for a lifetime, this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But it's what I did. Uh, so they hired me, and I was just completely thrilled. I'd just broken up with this guy named Neil, and I had to sort of start going with him again so I could tell him. <laughs> but I was I was terrified. There had been a, an earlier columnist who had actually put on, taken out, I heard this, ads on buses, mm-hmm. asking people for ideas for his column. Oh, my goodness. And I naturally, remember all the time it took me to actually write the columns that got me hired. And so I thought, well, at that pace, I could produce, you know, five a year. Right. You know, and it was supposed to be twice a week, every Tuesday and oh, Thursday. Wow. This was, uh, I was, there was a, we called it, Folsom Prison, I think it was, but it was Folsom and Fifth. This is a, an extra adjunct building right down from the Chronicle, which was at Fifth and Mission. Fifth and Mission. Yeah, and um, so we're down there. Oh, the columnists were there, like Alan Temko, who was uh, architecture, and Jerry Nockman, John Carroll worked at home, and Steve Rubenstein worked at the, at the main plant. I loved all these words. Like you would go down to the paper, you would go down to the plant, or you would hmm. file. I love the word file. Yeah. File this. Yeah. See, I came in sideways. People in journalism worked their way up to this, but I came in kind of sideways, so all the words completely thrilled me. And they were still producing the paper in the building then. The press was there? The or? press was there. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, anyway, I started doing it, and... Uh, I'd naturally assume this would be something you did for a few months, but <laughs> it went on for 12 years. Wow. 12 years. And uh, it was kind of this wonderful privilege. You know, mm-hmm. you had, there were two holes in the paper, and they just left it to me to fill them. Mm-hmm. And of course, there were people who didn't understand this. Remember, this writing about yourself hadn't really hit the, hit the zeitgeist yet. And mm-hmm. People would send me copies of my column with all the I's and me's circled in red. You know, <laughs> to let me know I was doing it again. Right. Uh, but the funny thing was that if you wrote a column, it was never about you. It was about, you know, um, who was it? Philip Lopate, I think, who said that, you know, I, I write about myself, about how the world comes at me because I think of that's how it comes at everyone. You know, and Jung said, which I never forgot, was his, he said that which is most personal is mo- most common. This is the odd thing about writing that the more personal you are, the more universal it is. The more you give people to identify with, 
right? So that's a, so I really couldn't, wasn't allowed to write about anything except I, was, I had to write about my own life. I wrote about my kids, about my dad, who was living in a truck in the desert by then. Uh, sometimes current events. I was going to ask about current events. Sometimes, but uh, still, your experiences. Still mine, but like you know, when they, the '89 uh, earthquake, I was only two months into the column, you know, and I didn't even go and walk around. Hmm. I mean, my experiences at home, everybody was huddled. Uh, I was, you know, listening to the ball game like mm-hmm. everybody else, <laughs> but trying to figure out where to die in the living room or in the, or in the yard. Right. You know, and uh, but it didn't occur to me that I was a journalist and that I should go out. I should go abroad. I should go through the streets. Anyway, dumb stuff like that. It's an earthquake, also. It was an earthquake. Well, were you but rattled? No, but were I didn't you? have it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was the biggest earthquake I'd been through, mm-hmm. and or before or since. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was a big earthquake. Very big. It went on for like I don't know, two, three minutes. Mm-hmm. And I was on the phone to my mother. Everybody was. There was this epic game. At the ballpark, and mm-hmm. everybody was listening to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking at the sliding glass patio door in the apartment. I'm living next door to here, and I'm thinking, does that count as going? Because then they would say you have to go in a doorway, and I think there's a sliding glass door. Does that count? You know, just, you just <laughs> if I go outside, will it let things follow me, or do I stay in? Anyway, not clued in. Luckily, it stopped, but. So the, and then when I met Bill, which was uh, a year after I'd had the column, you know, ninety maybe. Yeah, I met, uh, I got the column in eighty nine. I met him in nine in uh, November nineteen ninety. Okay. We got married in November of nineteen ninety one. Okay. But he knew all about me. Mm-hmm. He worked for Chronicle Books, which was also oh. in the same building. Oh. You know, so I had a. A little bit of history there. Yeah, I had a very clever opening line. I said, do you work in the building? Because he got in the elevator with me. And nobody could come into that building if they didn't work there. It was a good line anyway. Right. And for years, I I told everybody that he made the first move and said, my happiness depends on knowing your name. But no, I don't think he said that. (laughs) Anyway. But he read your column? He knew the column, yeah. The column had become kind of popular. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and when the first time I wrote a column about him, the first of many, I said, what do you want to be called? Because the previous Soon guy then. had been named, never mind his name, but anyway, he was called Neil. And uh, and Bill says, I want to be called Bill. So, <laughs> so he was afterward, people would say, that Bill, you're that Bill. You know? Anyway, it went on for really astonishingly for 10 years and it's kind of a lot of a pressure because you know you have to go through your life kind of regarding yourself in the back of the head with this recording voice can this be a column you know and a column is anything that uh, any just at the bad moments you know who was it was it Joan Didion said writing is turning your worst moments into money mm. and but you want that because it kind of rocks you back on yourself. It makes mm-hmm. you think. And also it produces a sympathetic column. And they were mostly, not always, but mostly humor columns. Well, and we learn, I feel like we learn more from those things, from disaster or 
bad things. I think so, yeah. And also when things are good, we just enjoy them. We don't yeah, yeah, we turn our brains oh, no, no, no. off. And you can't write about you can't write about good things at all. You can't yeah. write about happiness for more than like two sentences. Nobody's gonna put up with that. <laughs> We're bored. Yeah, in fact, uh, later on, late, late, late in the column, we bought a secondhand Lexus, like this really old one, mm-hmm. and mentioned that we had gone to to Bali on vacation. And this guy called us up and said, "You went to Bali, you yuppie scum," <laughs> <laughs> because you know you you establish a persona, and, mm-hmm. uh, and my persona was. Everybody imagines you differently. They didn't have pictures. Then. Sure. And I don't think they should have now because people have their own ideas. And people would say, I imagine you as five feet tall with Birkenstocks and your hair sitting <laughs> in the middle. And other, you know, Everybody would have their own idea of what you looked like. And they should have their own idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Leave something to the imagination. Well, also, uh, they're, they're going from the voice that you establish. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't want that trifled with. Right. You know, I remember the first time I saw John Carroll, I was so shocked because I associated a different image mm-hmm. with the voice in the column. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it was it was uh, kind of a, w- a wonderful way to live. I really, <laughs> I really only had to do two columns a week, but that means you have to throw out a lot. I remember the first time I went on vacation, and my mother said, "A vacation from what?" <laughs> talked about the kids a lot mm-hmm. and, and the f- by name or did you by name yeah they were little and the first time uh, I was gonna write a column about Patrick he had fallen in love he was always falling in love in those days and you know he was five or six and he was falling he fell in love with a little girl in his class named Una mm-hmm. and I said can I write about this and I showed it to him and he said no you can't write about that and I said what if I gave you 20 bucks <laughs> so that was the deal for years, really. The column was m- largely about them. It was 20 bucks. I never raised it because I didn't want it to overwhelm their judgment. Sure. But you learned no. the hustle. Hmm? You learned I the did. hustle of being a columnist. I did. And here's, <coughs> here's the interesting thing. Patrick, who's been a writer in New York, he, Patrick was, he writes for the New Yorker and he writes for the New York oh. Times and he's been writing for Vice News. What's his last name? He's, he's got a sort of a pen name, H-E-I-J. If you go okay. Patrick High, you'll you'll see him. A version of Jim's. Yeah, it, Jim spelled it H-E-I-G. G, okay. Yeah. And so Patrick he's, High. He's coming home, but uh, he's toying with the idea of asking the Chronicle about a column. Oh, wow. Isn't that fun? He would be way overqualified in a way, cause mm-hmm. he's, but on the other hand, he regarded as... Uh, a real challenge and he was just reading my little collections of columns it's so funny because now he's a grown up man and a fellow writer and he's reading them in a quite a different way yeah you know so that would be kind of fun anyway I kept that column until uh, 2004 when there was a big to do people who know the newspaper history know about that the examiner and chronicle merged Mm -hmm. and uh, the union was broken and a lot of people went away and Mm-hmm. I took a buyout at that time. Okay. Yeah. Kept the rights to my columns. But and now um, most of the people, almost all of the people I, are friends there still, Leah Garchik and so forth. But John, oh, yeah. I was going to ask you Carol if you Scott. knew Leah. Oh, yeah. yeah. She just listened around the corner. They're really just a warm person. Everybody yeah. loves Leah. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the trouble was I worked at home. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't, uh, until... 
After they uh, took the column away in this big shakeup, I was sent to work at, in the home and garden department, which I thought was, you know, this is when they want you to quit. Mm-hmm. And I would go in there with these big boards with different kinds of paint on them and carry them around in the office and say, what do you like? <laughs> <laughs> trying to get at them, and I put all these ferns on my desk. But, uh, uh, well, you know, the Chronicle's been around since 1852. Right. You know, and I think it's... Uh, done better than some other papers because of the fast money coming into San Francisco with mm-hmm. the dot-com. That, 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 that doesn't hurt. So it's nice. We still have the hometown paper. Yes. used to be called the comical. <laughs> well, it was known for very great voices. It was known for columnists. This was especially, you know, like in the late 60s where they would have headlines like uh, Great City Forced to, or was that New York? Great city forced to drink swill. I think that was the New York Times. Now that I think about Not it, but we did things that like one. that. We had yeah. great ones like that. Yeah. yeah. Did you know Herb Cain? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? Did your work overlap? I forget when he. It didn't, but you know, he was. He was. He was one of those people. Early when I came on the Chronicle, he would. He would say, "Well, I guess this is the time for me to step aside." Well, people talk about their buttons and their shirts and so forth, and it was a direct dig at me. Yeah. You know, but. Uh, he came around. We were in the same. There was a uh, a round table, a literary round table. We were both in, so I'd see him at these lunches. Yeah. And um, he was amazing. He was just indefatigable. You know, mm-hmm. he went out every night. Mm. And I would used to think, I think, well, who are you going to run into when you go out? R- Herb Kane? Maybe you'll see Herb Kane. <laughs> you know, but he is. <laughs> but uh, you gave. The voice to the city, you know, a city has to have a persona, a sense of itself. Mm-hmm. And he really did that all by himself, you know, with yeah. this Baghdad by the bay and this sense of insufferable smugness we've all had ever since about belonging to the city. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of gave that to the city. You know, I wish um, there was somebody like that at the Chronicle again to speak for the city. Do you think it's something he tapped into? I think and it's then something he invented. Do you think he invented yeah, it? Okay. I think he gave the city. I mean, this San Francisco's always had personality, you know, from you know the Barbary Coast to the Gold Rush to this iconoclastic counterculture of the '60s. We've shipped our counterculture to the East Bay and beyond yes. now, but um, yes, uh, but we've always and now we're this, frankly, a city of the rich, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we always, there's always these very decided views of San Francisco. But he, he kind of, he didn't, it was all his own, the way he talked about San Francisco. And it made his column this must read, mm-hmm. you know, little bold faced names and mm-hmm. so forth. Uh, it was quite an achievement, you know. He was this guy from Sacramento, you know. Mm-hmm. You know uh, so it really was a loss, and he wrote it until he died. Adair's book, Naked, Drunk, and Writing, Shed Your Inhibitions and Craft a Compelling Memoir or Personal Essay, is available wherever you buy books. We recorded this podcast at Adair's home in May 2018. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald, a.k.a. Joe Bigail. Film photography for this episode is by Michelle Kilfeather. Please follow Storied San Francisco on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
All 34 episodes and Michelle's photos of storytellers are up on the website, which is storiedsf.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Send your comments and suggestions to storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Check back next week when we'll hear from third-generation San Franciscan and 100-year-old Alice Murphy. Thank you.